Bookworm Games, Episode 24, To Tend a Village, Part 1. Welcome back. Wesley Schantz here. We'll make our way to Tend a Village over the course of two weeks or more, partly because it's not truly accessible when we first reach it at the end of the deep darkness, and mostly because I wanted to get to make a multi-part episode. Now, first, a comment from my compatriot, Alex Schmid, over at the History of Western Thought. Warm Games, this is Alex Schmid. Something interesting about scarabs that you mentioned is just, I wanted to mention that, and I think you probably remember this, remember it's two halves of a golden scarab that are put together by Jafar at the beginning of Aladdin in order to have them shoot the way towards the Cave of Wonders and then become the eyes when they split in half and yet still create a unity because two eyes create one focal point for the Cave of Wonders. And so the scarab is that which leads one back to the treasures of the past. And the Jungians, in particular Jung, thinks the scarab to be a very interesting symbol because once a bit of synchronicity happened with one of his patients, she was describing having seen a scarab in a dream and then a particular beetle came through the window during one of the, her therapy sessions with Jung that had the name Scarab in um, its Latin name. Uh, thanks, Alex. And in a follow-up text, he remarked further on the root word of psychology, that's psyche, which in Greek meant both butterfly and soul, so that finding one of those deep in the pyramid makes some sense too. Now, the theme of vision, uh, both inner and outward, continues to play an important role in our travels this week. We arrive on the outskirts of the deep darkness, a swampy jungle via Dungeon Man's yellow submarine. Unfortunately, we never get to explore the interior of the sub as a level in its own right, or use it to explore the depths of the underwater. It carries Ness and his friends a short way, playing the Tessie theme with the sound of water attached. Its periscope is the only part of it we see bobbing along through the river before coming to a rest at the swampy delta. Here the monkeys run an inn where you can stay for free, just at the edge of the darkness of a silhouette of masked trees. There are warnings soon confirmed of a deleterious health effect of wading through the deep muck beyond. The screen flashes red for every few steps you take while submerged. Something like the combination of sunstroke in the desert and the sewers of foresight, nature itself, impeding, sapping your strength. Whereas elsewhere, in each of the your sanctuary locations, the earth had lended its power to your own. Another monkey playing along the riverbank wants to learn to teleport, and if you agree to teach him, he in turn shows you a new way to use the ability. He turns at right angles to build up speed around his tree. Technically, this is something you could always do, but I never realized it until I saw him go. The running run-up to the teleport ability will come in handy in the deep darkness if you ever need to cross a patch of gunk quickly, and don't mind spending a little psychic points PP to save some health and some time. The little guy also gives you an item called Monkey's Love, which would allow you to summon him into battle for one time, aid against the foe. Like the handmade band-aid from Paula's mom, the sweaty gym socks of the four-side baker who lost his ancestral contact lenses, or the brain food lunches for Salem Dalam. It's something between too sentimental and too valuable for me at least to ever actually use it. It's also a physical manifestation 
in the form of an inventory item of something intangible, which is a fun thing to think about, since in a way, everything in the game is like this. The only other characters you meet here are a shady doctor under another tree, who does not think it is necessary for you two to speak, and the international businessman from another country who's interested in claiming the rich natural resources of the deep darkness. He acts as the doctor's agent. And there's also this odd breathing tube short way into the, uh, the jungle, which turns out to be a money changer hiding under the swamp. The anti-colonial message, I think, could not be more clear. There are also some priceless magic truffles to be found growing under certain trees, but it takes a piggy snout to sniff them out. Or you can use the big red X's in the player's guide. Along with the monkeys, they are the shy inhabitants of the Tenda village on the far side of the jungle, completely unprepared for any foreign investors. To proceed further, once you cross over the boundary of the inky blackness beside a gift box luring you in, it will be necessary to use the Hawkeye, or at least it's very helpful to do so. And when you do, whatever using it entails, maybe holding it up to your eye like a telescope or periscope, or letting it crumble to dust in the moist air, the jungle becomes perfectly visible, and the ancient artifact disappears in the sound of a magic butterfly. The jungle, which had looked dark, is now just like all the rest along the river, so that it seems plenty of light was there all along, only now it illuminates rather than casting into shadow. Perhaps you moved slightly, out of the light you were blocking. You, the one playing the game, had been between the light behind you and the trees before you. The way you wanted to go was cast into darkness by your very desire to go on. And by stepping aside, the way becomes clear. Perhaps it's something like this. For what is vision of whatever wonder without the light to see by? And who can take credit for the light? As your party toils through the inhospitable waterways, oppressive music blaring, fetid ooze draining your HP. You are accosted by demonic petunias and electric eels, fishmen, hard crocodiles, pitbull slugs, all brightly colored, blue, yellow, green, and red. Enemy sprites are reused with a fresh cone of paint. To break up the tedium, you might think about how funny it is that people are running up when you call them with the for sale sign to buy your extra items and are not hindered by the swamp. And if you hadn't used the Hawkeye, you could use their approach to see which way to go next. The practical similarity between the ancient wisdom and the invisible hand of the market is bizarrely apt. It comes in handy, for there are numerous present boxes and dead ends, besides those magic truffles luxuriating in the muck at the base of tangled roots of trees. Everywhere the mangrove-type trees and violently bright flowers grow profuse, rank, either apart in single glory or fused into walls impassable. For this portion of the game, the corresponding work of art that comes to mind, perhaps a little superficially, is Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I haven't read it closely, but I looked at it again just for a bit now, and it's mesmerizing. See what you think. The sea reach of the Thames stretched before us like the beginning of an interminable waterway. In the offing, the sea and the sky were welded together without a joint, and in the luminous space the tan sails of the barges, drifting up 
with the tide seemed to stand still in red clusters of canvas, sharply peaked with gleams of varnished spritz. A haze rested on the low shores that ran out to sea in vanishing flatness. The air was dark above Gravesend, and farther back still seemed condensed into a mournful gloom, brooding motionless over the biggest and the greatest town on earth. The director of companies was our captain and our host. We four affectionately watched his back as he stood in the bows, looking to seaward. On the whole river there was nothing that looked half so nautical. He resembled a pilot, which to a seaman is trustworthiness personified. It was difficult to realize his work was not out there in the luminous estuary, but behind him, within the brooding gloom. Between us there was, as I have already said somewhere, the bond of the sea. Besides holding our hearts together through long periods of separation, it had the effect of making us tolerant of each other's yarns, and even convictions. The lawyer, best of old fellows, had, because of his many years and many virtues, the only cushion on deck, and was lying on the only rug. The accountant had brought out already a box of dominoes, and was toying architecturally with the bones. Marlowe sat cross-legged at right aft, leaning against the mizzenmast. He had sunken cheeks, a yellow complexion, a straight back, an ascetic aspect, and, with his arms dropped, the palms of his hands outwards resembled an idol. The director, satisfied the anchor, had good hold, made his way aft, and sat down amongst us. We exchanged a few words lazily. Afterwards there was silence on board the yacht. For some reason or other we did not begin that game of dominoes. We felt meditative, and fit for nothing but placid staring. The day was ending in a serenity of still and exquisite brilliance. The water shone pacifically. The sky, without a speck, was a benign immensity of unstained light. The very mist on the Essex marsh was like a gauzy and radiant fabric, hung from the wooded rises inland and draping the low shores in diaphanous folds. Only the gloom to the west, brooding over the upper reaches, became more somber every minute, as if angered by the approach of the sun. And at last... In its curved and imperceptible fall, the sun sank low, and from glowing white changed to a dull red without rays, without heat, as if about to go out suddenly, stricken to death by the touch of that gloom brooding over a crowd of men. Forthwith a change came over the waters, and the serenity became less brilliant but more profound. The old river in its broad reach rested unruffled at the decline of day, after ages of good service done to erase that peopled its banks, spread out in the tranquil dignity of a waterway leading to the uttermost ends of the earth. We looked at the venerable stream, not in the vivid flush of a short day that comes and departs forever, but in the august light of abiding memories. And indeed nothing is easier for a man who has, as the phrase goes, followed the sea, with reverence and affection, than to evoke the great spirit of the past upon the lower reaches of the Thames. The tidal current runs to and fro in its unceasing service, crowded with memories of men and ships it has borne to the, to the rest of home or to the battles of the sea. It had known and served all the men of whom the nation is proud, from Sir Francis Drake to Sir John Franklin, knights all, titled and untitled, the great knights-errant of the sea. It had borne all the ships whose names are like jewels flashing in the night of time, from the Golden Hind, returning with her rotund flanks full of treasure, to be visited by the Queen's Highness and thus pass out of the gigantic tale, to the Erebus and Terror, bound on other conquests, and that never returned. It had known the ships and the men. They had shaled from Deptford, from Greenwich, from Erith, the adventurers and the settlers, king ships and the ships of men, on 
change, captains, admirals, the dark interlopers of the eastern trade, and the commissioned generals of East India fleets, hunters for gold or pursuers of fame, they all had gone out on that stream, bearing the sword and often the torch, messengers of the might within the land, bearers of a spark from the sacred fire. What greatness had not floated on the ebb of that river into the mystery of an unknown earth? The dreams of men, the seed of commonwealths, the germs of empires. The sun sank, the dusk fell on the stream, and lights began to appear along the shore. The Chapman Lighthouse, a three-legged thing, erect on a mud flat, shone strongly. Lights of ships moved in the fairway, a great stir of lights going up and going down. And farther west on the upper reaches, the place of the monstrous town was still marked ominously on the sky, a brooding gloom and sunshine, a lurid glare under the stars. And this also, said Marlowe suddenly, has been one of the dark places of the earth. So there we get the frame narrative as Marlowe begins to tell the tale which becomes Heart of Darkness. I think it's worth knowing that Conrad himself did lead an adventurous life on the sea before he settled in to write his novels, and he picked up English as a second or maybe a third language. He displays it here with incredible flair. Anyhow, when you come upon the wrecked helicopter in the middle of the jungle, banged up and without an engine, you might also think of the film Apocalypse Now and the recurring American nightmare of Korea and Vietnam and wonder where Pokey has got to. Just past there, in a narrow channel of the maze-like jungle, another familiar face awaits, chuckling, expectorating, and threatening you by death, uh, with death by vomit. He challenges you to a rematch. Master Belch, now calling himself Puke, and called by the fight dialogue, Barf, who has been training, just like Pooh. Stink and nausea flow from him, along with the little piles and belches of washed-out beige wandering the jungle. But after a few rounds, likely crying and poisoned by now as you are, Pooh swoops in to deal the final blow with his new star-storm sigh, which is pretty cool. No further words are exchanged. He rejoins your party, bringing you back to full strength. At last, you come upon dry land by Tenda Village which is suitable for teleportation purposes. In the soothing cool and dry of the cave, tend a village with gentle hoots and whistles and chimes for ambient tunes. You can wash the gunk off in a hot spring, and there's a cup of coffee or something you can't yet drink, just like in Saturn Valley. The inhabitants here, too, like the Saturns, are small, soft-looking, only these are green with stick arms rather than a bunch of oversized heads and noses walking around. Rather than speaking with a strange dialect, the Tendas hardly speak at all. We're shy, they say. We're shy. Or some slight variation. In the case of the one who looks like he has horns. And then at the back of the cave, the only outgoing Tenda reveals that there's a book which can help the villagers communicate, as he has learned to do. And then the black tunnel to the underworld can be opened by his strong neighbor, a few words, who's there beside you, guarding the rock that covers the hole. Going back outside, all set to teleport off to look for this overcoming shyness book, Ness receives two phone calls in quick succession, a bit like that sequence back on emerging from Jackie's cafe after Moonside. The first is from Apple Kid, who is cut off in the middle of telling you about his new invention and the missing Dr. Andonuts, 
by what sounds a lot like a kidnapping. <laughs> then immediately after, Orange Kid calls, wondering where Apple Kid is. And before Ness can get a word in, as if he ever did speak, Orange Kid goes on that he was hoping Apple Kid would lend him the Overcoming Shyness book he had borrowed from the library. So, while it briefly looked as though the game would give you a choice here whether to rescue Apple Kid or to go look for the book first, the two goals collapse into one. As much to say, helping out friends is what overcoming shyness looks like. We know that Apple Kid has always been isolated, living in squalor with only a mouse for company, totally devoted to his work to the point of forgetting to bathe or eat. And since he began funding his projects, he's become more outgoing, seeking out the great scientist in winters, finishing a number of useful inventions. He's been working on self-improvement, it seems, as well, by reading. And while Ness has made friends and traveled the world, he still only receives calls on his phone, never makes them, except to a select number of people, mostly just his family. Surely Ness, too, could still work on overcoming shyness. So, you teleport to Winters, where Maxwell is outside the boarding school gates, looking around because Tony has gone missing. Down by Lake Tess, Sebastian, the Tessie Watcher, is also gone. One of his friends is inspired to speak a haiku in his honor. Where are you, my friend? They came and took you away. Come back, Sebastian. Hey, that's a haiku poem, he says. Another thinks he saw Tessie in the form of a UFO that snatched him away to Stonehenge. The kids in the tea tent remark on the frightening new monsters which have appeared in the pine woods. Still, Tessie and the bubble monkey will carry you across to break roads old digs, where the same old monsters skedaddle, and the same billboards remind you how far the dungeon maker has come in some ways, how little he's changed in others. His name, Brick Road, seems even then to have referred to the maze he built, and his aspiration to be both person and place, like noblemen whose names possess their homeland, De Montaigne of the Mountain, for example, or like gods, Apollo of Delphi, the muses of Helicon or Parnassus, Athena, Hades, Hades whose, names connotes, whose name connotes the uh, unseen underworld he rules over. Uh, more old enemies flee before you in the rainy circle caves. And then in Dr. Andonut's lab, his friend the cave boy is still happy to do business with you. And Apple Kid's friend, the mouse, bequeaths the eraser eraser. Apple Kid had just finished before being captured, where the mouse could do nothing. But giving this gift to you is enough. Now you can enter Stonehenge proper. The underground base pulses with the kind of light last seen beneath the graveyard in Threed. Deep in its depths, it recalls Belch's factory behind Grapefruit Falls, which was the last time people were being kidnapped. Dealing with item capacity is key here, for there is the possibility of picking up the priceless Sword of Kings, the only weapon Pooh can equip from one of the gold plated Starman supers. They appear in only a few of the deeper rooms, by which point the levels you've gained have probably made your, uh, while making your way there, may well render it sort of moot whether you actually get the sword or not. I've never found one, partly because of the astronomical odds against it, one out of 128, and partly because I get mixed up thinking it's the regular old Starmen who hold the present box. And then I fought enough of them by one of the rooms where butterflies appear to win a brain food lunch, finally, before realizing my mistake. The starmen are easily picked off, 
since they're vulnerable from the front rather than the back. And so long as you run up and tag them just after they've materialized close enough, before they can teleport behind or into the midst of your party, you can earn a green swirl and strike first every time. The trouble is, they're usually accompanied by menacing mooks wielding freeze sigh, or worse, the atomic robot, who can replenish HP and move quickly, and then explode on being destroyed. Unlike in the sanctuary area, Rainy Circle or the others, where enemies run from you after you defeat the boss, the enemies in Stonehenge all simply disappear after you defeat the Starman DX. So, the window to find a sword is limited. Beyond these flashing, blinking mazes, the eerie drumming music, the broken instruments you gather, a trumpet and harmonica, a pixie bracelet and spiky, spicy jerky, sorry, you come at last through dark hangar-like catwalks to tubes full of pale green goop, where not just Apple and Undonuts and Tony and Sebastian, but a number of other people are imprisoned. There's a hippie, a Mr. T-looking farmer, and a Mr. Saturn. So why? Was it an attempt to lure Ness and his friends in? Was it to wheedle information from the prisoners, which would help Gigas defeat them? Or perhaps was it an attempt to form a team? Wisdom, courage, and friendship, to the consternation of the aliens, are not susceptible to backwards engineering in this way. As it happens, Apple Kid and Ann Donuts encounter the Mr. Saturns through their misadventure, and it leads to the long-sought-after phase disorder technology, which will prove critical to the end of Ness's adventure. Yet again, the mysterious Apple of Enlightenment is alluded to, this time by the Starman DX, whose spiky carapace adorns the box art, and who seems to lend his name and motto to the fan website, starmen.net. Do not underestimate us. I guess they say it because they worked for many years to try to get Nintendo of America to release Mother 3, Earthbound 2. In their case, they finally succeeded, I think. Anyway, after attempting to thwart the prophecy spoken of by BuzzBuzz Buzz back at the beginning of the game about Ness and his friends defeating the Universal Cosmic Destroyer, this attempt only tends towards that very result. As so often with mythic interventions, and destiny, destiny will out. The enemy warns you not to underestimate them. And then one multi-bottle rocket is more than enough to wreck the robot voice miscreant. And as he does so, he admits that you are stronger than they thought, that indeed all their attempts to waylay Ness and his friends have only contributed to their wisdom, their courage, their friendship, so that evil's grasping is its own undoing. More on this another time. So, if I get a chance, I will record another conversation with friends and listeners this coming week, and then we'll come back to Tenda Village, Part 2, Lumine Hall, a little stop at the library, to wrap up this story thread concerning seeing in the dark. Today, we've rambled through the swamp of deep darkness and the technological sprawl of Stonehenge, with a brief stopover on the Thames with Marlowe, just beginning to spin his yarn, Heart of Darkness. And we just scratched the surface of the shy Tenda village. So until next time, do not underestimate, which is another way of saying, love, bless them, and just hope that your friends leave an eraser eraser behind in time for you to come and rescue them. Take care.